WBC, you may go ahead and have a seat. It is a great joy and delight to be with all of you this morning. After four months, four whole months of having an empty worship center, you have no idea what a treat it is to look out and see all those beautiful faces, all those smiling faces. So it's good to to, uh, be able to open up God's word and worship our creator together as a family. I'd also like to welcome our online family as well this morning. We're glad that you could be joining us too. I like to Start off with a prayer, an old Anglican prayer. Bow your head and your hearts with me, please. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. For your son's sake, amen. There are occasions in our lives where we find ourselves surprised by an act that leaves us almost completely speechless, an act that is so utterly wonderful we can hardly believe our eyes, and that just happened to be the case for our three littlest ones a few months ago. Uh, Cosette and I had spent countless hours scouring the internet looking for a very specific object. And after several evenings laying in bed, kind of whispering on our iPads together, we're like, I think we have it. So uh, the next day, we uh, hopped in the car and set out to see if we could get that very, very special object. And after a uh, few hours, we struck gold, and we returned home with a gift for our kids, one that you might just say left them a bit surprised. But they didn't have <gasps> What? What? A bunny? Wait, are we keeping it? Yeah, wait, let me bring it in. Let me bring wait, it in. No, 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 saw that video who was like, what is that thing, a hamster? I'm like, can't you tell a pit bull when you see one? Aren't some surprises like absolutely wonderful? Like the ones that are like completely unexpected, the ones that are absolutely overwhelming and totally undeserving? Well, there's a gentleman in the Bible, there's a historical account where we see a man who received a surprise. Uh, He was completely unexpected, It was absolutely overwhelming and totally undeserving. 
If you want to find out what this surprise is, I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 9, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 13. So this morning, we're going to look at a man's life who received the surprise of a lifetime. And his story is going to help us answer two very important questions for all of us today. And the first one is this. God, what does your grace look like in real life? You know, we hear the word grace all the time. We give grace, we say grace, uh, we, we, that person was gracious. But what is God's grace look like in my life? And number two, how can I tell if God's grace is having an effect on my own life? You see, sometimes we have a hard time knowing the true condition of our hearts. Sometimes we're not really sure if, if God's is, grace is really making any difference in our lives. Maybe you're here this morning and you're wondering, if, is God even at work in my life this morning? Perhaps you've asked the question, is there any way that I can know for sure if God is at, in my, at work in my life today? And the answer to that question is a resounding yes. Yes, you can know whether or not God's grace is having an effect in your life today. We're going to take a look at a portion of scripture that's going to show us with great clarity what grace is. And then it's going to show us how am I really doing when it comes to my walk with God. You see, God's grace is not without effect. It should be changing you. If you are a Christian and you claim Jesus Christ is your Savior, God's grace can and should be making a difference in our everyday lives. So three evidences to tell if God's grace is impacting your life today. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Follow along in the inerrant, inspired word of God with me, please. Verse 1, David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba, your servant, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Well, where is he, the king asked. Ziba answered, he's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. And David said his name. Your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your fa father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. He bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. And so the man ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Verse 13, and he lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he, he was crippled in both feet. Let me give you a little bit, bit of background here. 
King Saul served as the first king of Israel. And uh, David ended up serving him. And Saul had a son named Jonathan. And Jonathan and David struck up a friendship. And over a period of time, David and Jonathan became very close friends. And at one point in their friendship, Jonathan approached David and he says, I want you to make a promise. And here's what he said to David. He said, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So many years have passed. King Saul is dead. Jonathan is dead. And King David is now serving as the second king over Israel. Here we go. Three evidences to tell if God's grace is impacting your life today. Number one, you can tell God's grace is impacting your life today if you keep your word even when it comes with the cost. You can tell God's grace is impacting your life today if you keep your word even when it comes with the cost. Another way of saying that is when you make a promise, you keep your promise even if it's going to make life difficult for you. So David is in his castle, he's in his recliner, and he remembers the promise he made to Jonathan years before. So he asks a question. It's a very unusual question. Some might say it's just an outright ridiculous question. And I imagine everyone within earshot who heard David say that was thinking, did I just hear David say what I thought I heard him say? And David said in verse one, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, what in the world is so bizarre about that question? Well, we all know that uh, David killed a giant, giant by the name of Goliath. So he kicked his can, and after the victory, there was a rather large celebration. There was a big party. There's singing and there's dancing and all the ladies of Israel come out and they start singing and the first verse is all about how great King Saul is and they're singing, Saul has slain his thousands. Well, King Saul has just eaten it up that all the ladies of Israel think that he's the big cheese. So the music's all cranked up and he's on his uh, palace steps and he's, he's just doing the YMCA on the steps and he's giving fist bumps and chest bumps and then he goes into doing the hammer dance up and down the steps when all of a sudden the ladies break out with the second verse. Saul has struck down his thousands, but David has struck down his tens of thousands. This line galled him. This got up in his crawl in a real bad sort of way. The Bible says he was seething with je jealousy. So Saul decided he was going to have none of that. He wasn't going to have anyone hanging around his kingdom stealing the spotlight. So he purposed in his heart that David was just going to have to go. And so soon after, David was on the run for his life. And he became homeless. And he was isolated from his family. And he was living in constant fear. David never knew if he was going to wake up to see the light of another day. Now, after all those years of being on the run, he now asks the question, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? 
Now, if you're one of David's friends and you were with him when all that happened, when you were with him when he was being hunted down like an animal, when he was running from cave to cave to cave, never knowing if Saul was going to kill him, if you're one of David's friends, what's going through your mind when you hear him ask, is there anyone in the house of Saul that I can show kindness to? I can tell you what you're thinking. David, you mean the guy who hated your guts? You mean the one who kept trying to kill you over and over and over again? The one who made life absolutely miserable for you? You mean that, Saul? And David is like, yeah, I want to show kindness to his family. Now, how would you have liked to have been David when he floated that question out for everyone in his court to hear? Do you think his family would have been very excited to show kindness to the enemy? Do, do you think David's fellow soldiers who bled with him on the battlefield were very excited about inviting someone from the enemy's camp into their presence? And then can you imagine someone having enough courage to ask what everyone else was thinking? Um, David, why in the world would you want to go and do something like that? And then there's silence. David clears his throat and he says, because I made a promise. I gave my word. I told Jonathan I would show kindness to his family no matter what. You want to know if God's grace is having an impact on your life today? Then just look at what you're doing with all the promises you make. You want to know if God's grace has reached down and touched the deepest part of your heart, then look and see if you're keeping your word even when it comes at a cost. You see, God takes all of our promises seriously. There is one promise that we will ever make that God is indifferent about. They're very important to him. When we make a promise, God expects us to keep, and he says in Psalms 15, Lord, who may dwell on your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? He whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart, has no slander on his tongue, who does his neighbor no wrong and casts no slur on his fellow man, and get this, who keeps his oath even when it hurts. Do you have any idea who wrote that psalm? David did. You know, David suffered a great deal at the hands of King Saul, and he could have come up with a thousand different excuses as to why he didn't need to keep his promise. Folks would have completely understood if he reneged on his promise. Everyone would have understood if he had a change of heart, but he didn't. Honoring his word was important to him. Were you married, folks? Did you make any sort of promises on your wedding day? Did you stand before God and make promises to God and to your spouse? Did you promise things like for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, for sickness and in health, to cherish from this day forward till death do us part? Did you make any promises like that? Yes. How are you doing today with those promises? Excellent. Are they just as important to you today as the day you made them? Those vows that you made on your wedding day, are you honoring them even when they come with a cost? Even when your spouse is cold? Even when your spouse is indifferent? Even when your spouse is harsh? Even when they're hard to love? Are your promises still being kept then? 
For, for, you pro, for you parents, when you make a promise to your child and you know in order to follow through, it is gonna be like a major inconvenience. It's gonna cost you. Do you keep your promise? We have a saying in our house, when a fox makes a promise, a fox keeps a promise. You kids, you kids, when you tell your parents that you're gonna do a chore, or you kids, when you tell your parents you're gonna be home at a certain time and you know you're gonna miss out on fun because everybody is still at the party, they're still doing things, do you keep your word even when it comes at a cost? How about when you promise to help out in a ministry in the church? Like, do you follow through? Like, when you know it's gonna foul up your schedule to show up on time and do that, do you still follow through? For those of us that are in life groups at the beginning of the generation, we sign a little covenant, and the covenant says, I am deeply concerned about your growth. I'm deeply concerned about my growth. I love Jesus. Let's love Jesus together. And I'm gonna sign my name that I take life group serious because I love you, and I want us to grow together because we're better together. How are you doing with that commitment if you signed your name to it? See, not everyone keeps their promises when the heat is turned up. It's been said promises are like babies, easy to make, hard to deliver. And all the ladies of the church said, all right, you can tell from those ladies which ones probably got an epidural during their delivery and which ones didn't. And you little ones that don't know what epidural is, ask Pastor Phil after the service. As Christians, we shouldn't be making empty promises. When we tell somebody that we're gonna do something, they need to count on us that our word is our bond. Yes, and so if you wanna know if God's grace is making an impact on your life today, then just look and see how well you are keeping your promises, even when it comes at a cost. Number two, you can tell if God's grace is impacting your life today if you're willing to show God's kindness to others even when they don't deserve it. You can tell God's grace is impacting your life today if you're willing to show God's kindness to others even when they don't deserve it. To put it another way, you consistently do good to the people you consider unworthy of any kindness. People who irritate you, people who are critical of you, people who are harsh with you, people that are hard to love, people who are, write this word down, undeserving, undeserving. You show kindness to people you think that are undeserving because you love Jesus and Jesus loves you. Now, David is looking to do good to someone who's completely and utterly undeserving of any of his kindness. So we pick up here in verse two of chapter nine. Follow along with me. Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba, your servant, he replied. And the king asked, is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? So someone's in the court, and they answer David's question and tells him that there is a servant of Saul that's still alive. His name is Ziba. And Ziba is summoned into David's palace, and David asks him a question. Now notice something very, very important, just a slight nuance here in the text. David's question is worded a bit differently here than in verse one. He asks, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Do you see the difference? 
Right here in the text, he says, is there no one still alive I can show God's kindness? Now, the word kindness, as used here, comes from the Hebrew word hesed, right? There's no single word in the entire English dictionary or language that expresses the meaning of hesed adequately. There's like no easy equivalent here. Uh, the closest we can get to this word is words like kindness, steadfast love, to deal kindly, and this word has said always implies doing good to another person at their time of need, regardless of their worthiness. And here's the thing. You keep doing them good. You keep showing them kindness. And the reason why you do this is because you desire to have a relationship with that person. Now, it would be a major understatement to say that the kindness David wants to show this man is mind-blowing. It is unheard of. Let me explain why. As soon as a new king came into power, the first thing that he would do after taking a hot bath and eating some chicken wings is he would come in and he would clean house. He would wipe out everybody. He would kill the king. He would kill the king's friends. He'd kill the king's friend's friends. He'd kill the pool keeper. He'd kill the beekeeper. He'd kill the zookeeper. He'd kill the nanny. He would kill the butler. He would kill them all. Before he would kill the king, he'd put the king down on his knees. If he had a pet fish, he would flush the fish down the toilet right in front of his eyes. And then he would say, "You now go ahead and lop off his head. He wiped out everyone. New kings did not want anyone hanging around to jeopardize the rule. So the conquered king and the conquered king's family never expected to receive an ounce of kindness at all. So when David asks the question, he's basically asking, is there anyone still left from the enemy's camp that I can show kindness to? He's not looking for revenge. He's not looking to get a pound of flesh. He's looking for an enemy to love. He's looking to give his said. Now what David is looking to do is to give mercy and grace to the most undeserving person in his entire kingdom. Now let me give you a definition of mercy and grace. Uh, it's gonna help you and I understand what this man is about ready to receive from King David. Now uh, a couple months ago, uh, Gino gave us some pretty good definitions of mercy and grace. So mercy is not getting what you deserve. You deserve punishment for a wrongdoing you deserve punishment for doing evil, but the punishment is withheld. That's mercy. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. You receive a kindness that you have no business receiving. You get a kindness when you don't deserve it. Now let me illustrate this for you. Let me give you an illustration of mercy. So uh, let's just say I join a group called Antifa. And I noticed that my neighbor next door has just purchased a BMW. So I decide he shouldn't have anything nice, and I'm going to go over and I'm going to steal it. So at night, I dress all in black. I go into, break into his garage, and while I'm trying to steal his car, I knock something over. I wake up my neighbor. My neighbor comes out with a shotgun, and he says, uh, Take your, pull your mask down. I pull my mask down, and he says, Oh, I didn't know that was you, Pastor Sean. If he doesn't shoot me or turn me into the police, I just got mercy. I deserve punishment, but I don't get it. 
Now, grace is something that's different. If I join Antifa and I notice that my neighbor has a nice BMW and I decide that I don't think he should have it and I go around the neighborhood slandering his name to everyone saying, do you know that that man scammed a ton of people for several years so he could buy that? And then uh, when I do that, when I'm done slandering his name, I go over to his yard, I pour gasoline on his finely manicured lawn, I, I, uh, pour, I spray graffiti on his house, and I throw a few stones through his window, and I do all this while he's standing at his front door and he's watching me. Then when I'm done destroying his house as best as I can, I walk up to him, I spit in his face, and I turn in and walk away. Five minutes later, there's a knock at my door. I open up. It's my neighbor. My neighbor says, uh, Sean, I, I, I've, I've heard that you kind of have a fondness for, for my car. I've, I've worked like 10 years to get that, and I've been dreaming about it for a while. Uh, but I, I want you to have it. And he throws me the keys, and then he gives me a hug. But it's okay, he sanitized his hands first. He gives me a hug. That's grace. I don't deserve any of that kindness but he gives it to me anyways. That's what grace and mercy look like in action, and this is what King David is about ready to give to this man. So David tracks this man down, and here's what we find in verses 3b through 6. So Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan, he is crippled in both feet. Well, where is he, the king asked. Ziba answered, he's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, and Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to him and paid him honor. And David said his name, and he said, your servant. So in verse three, we find out that this man is crippled. And many, many years ago, uh, there was a, a war going on in Israel, and um, this man had a nurse, and the nurse heard the news that Israel lost the war, that King Saul lost his life, that Jonathan lost his life, his father lost his life, and so in her haste, she scooped him up, took what she could, and on her way out, she tripped and she dropped this man, and he became crippled. In verse four, we find out where this man is living, okay? We find that he's living in an obscure place. He has no home of his own, and he's forced to live and hiding, and live under someone else's roof. And then in verse six, we are finally given this man's name. On the count of three, I would like for all of us to say out, his, say out loud his name as best as we can. One, two, three. I think I just heard our executive pastor say Pat. <laughs> what a name. Who names their kids Mephibosheth? Like, can you imagine what it was like when Mephibosheth was growing up as a kid? Like, at his, when he's turning 40 years old and he's at a birthday party and all the little kids are around and, and uh, they're singing happy birthday to him and they get to where they have to say his name in the song and then there's silence because, like, nobody knows how to pronounce his name. I mean, like, the kid would have zero self-esteem. So what in the world does the name Mephibosheth mean? Well, in Hebrew, the word Bosheth means shame. Some scholars believe that it means big shame or shameful thing. So this man of shame comes into the throne room of the king and he bows down. Now remember, he's a cripple. He's crippled in both of his feet 
And this would have been very hard for him to get down. It would have been very hard for him to get up. It would be very awkward for him to do this. And he does a face plant. And verse seven says that he was scared. Well, like, how do you know he was scared? Well, first of all, David says, don't be scared. And number two, this man knows um, everything that I just told you about how old uh, new kings treat the old king's family. So he has every reason to be terrified. David then proceeds to tell him everything that he's going to do for him. And notice Mephibosheth's response. What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Now, dead dog is a term of self-abasement. It's a derogatory term. In Old Testament times, dogs were not pets. They were certainly not man's best friends. When you look up the word dogs, when it's often used, it's not used in a lovely context. They were pests. So calling yourself a dead dog was the equivalent of saying, I'm like a cockroach. I'm like roadkill. So basically, Mephibosheth is saying, I am nothing. I am less than nothing. I'm not worthy of any kindness from you whatsoever, King David. Why would anyone in the world, let alone you, a king, take note of me? I'm worthy of death and judgment, not mercy and grace. Here is a guy who couldn't walk and couldn't work. He had no hope for a future. He didn't have a home of his own. He was homeless. He was an outcast. He had few, if any, friends. He was handicapped. He couldn't take care of himself, couldn't feed, do hardly anything for himself. And even his name meant big shame. A shameful man from a shameful family. And David wants to shower him with unbelievable grace. This is amazing. This is truly amazing. A king pursues his enemy, takes his enemy into his own home and desires to have a relationship with him. Who does these things? This would be like in the 1940s, a Jew escaping from a concentration camp and after the war's over, comes into an SS guard and sees this is the man that exterminated all their family and their entire community and they invite that SS guard over for tea and crumpets unheard of. But this is where we begin to see the point of the whole passage. The writer wants you and I to be absolutely blown away by this kind of lavish grace. And then after we pick ourselves up off the theological grace floor, he whispers this, you think David is good? You think David is generous? God is so much better infinitely better. You can't even begin to fathom how good and how gracious this king of the universe is. God is infinitely more giving than David. Do you think David's doing a lot? That is nothing compared to what he pours out on us. God is the greatest giver in the universe. And for whatever reason, we think God is this cosmic killjoy, just waiting to squelch all of our fun and joy, that he just, he's so miserly, he's the greatest giver in the universe. And the most shocking part is, the king is a giver to rebels who hate him. Mephibosheth's story paints a very vivid picture of how God relates to you and to me if you're a believer. God's like, you see, you see what kind of pathetic hopeless, lost condition Mephibosheth was in. 
and we're like, yeah, man, that dude was in a real pickle. He was in a mess. And God's like, Mephibosheth doesn't hold a candle compared to what kind of spiritual condition you were in before Jesus Christ came to run after you and pursue you. Do you know what kind of shape we were in before God pursued us and he intervened and he ran for us? We were God's enemies, Romans 5.10. We were storing up wrath for the day of God's judgment, Romans 2.5. We were dead in our sins and completely unable to make the first move towards God, Ephesians 2.1. We were blind to the glorious beauty of the person of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4.4. We were corrupt to the very depths of our soul. The poison of asps were on our tongue, Romans 3.11-17. We were desperately wicked and beyond cure, Jeremiah 17.9. We had no fear, zero fear of God in our eyes, Romans 3.18. We were God-haters, Romans 8.7. We were deserving of hell and death for eternity, Romans 6.23. May I suggest to you that not one of us have a very lovely resume to submit to the king of the universe. There is not a single reason under the sun for God to be attracted to any of us. He didn't get a bargain. He didn't pick a couple of us who were like, have really gifted. He's like, man, I need to make my bench deeper on the team, so I want that one. What he got was rubbles. And yet this king literally crosses the universe to pursue his enemies whose hearts are as corrupt and dark as can be, and when he finds them, he just showers them with grace. This king takes outcasts and spiritual lepers and spiritual cripples who have nothing to offer but their sin and he invites them into his home for eternity and he makes them co-heirs with his son, Jesus Christ. This is what grace looks like. God never, ever deals with people according to their worthiness. He deals with them according to their neediness. And man's greatest need has always been forgiveness of sin. It's always been our sin that's been a barrier that's kept us at odds with the king of the universe. It's our sin and our rebellion. But he doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what we need. And we see in Romans chapter five, verse eight, that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still what? While we were still what? Sinners, Christ died for us. He came after us. He went on a cosmic rescue to get and save rebels. He didn't come to seek and save what was pure and good. He came to seek and save that what was lost. And he gave his life. But then he doesn't stop there. God's like, if I'm willing to send my son, Jesus Christ, to give his life up for you, then I want you to go and look like Jesus Christ to the world. He says things like this, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. It's kind of ironic that he even needs to tell us to do that. Why wouldn't we give grace and mercy to the fellow undeserving people who are just like us, just broken, just like us, when God has infinitely poured out his grace and mercy on us? I was reading a book many years ago called Tortured for Christ. It's about a uh, pastor in Romania. He decided that when the communists took over that he was still going to preach the gospel regardless of the cost. And so he writes this in his book, uh, being a prisoner in there. He says, a new prisoner was shoved into the cell with us in Romania. At first, no one recognized him. He was dirty and thin, just like the rest of us. But then someone explained, 
This, this is Captain Popskew, and this name was well known. He had been one of the worst torturers of Christians. We asked him, how in the world did you come to be in here among us? And in tears, he said, one day as I sat in my office, a boy of about 12 years old entered with a flower in his hand. He gave his name and explained, Captain, you are the one who arrested my mother. Today is her birthday. I always used to bring her a flower on this day. I can't do so this time because of you. So I decided to bring a flower to the mother of your children. Take this flower to your wife and tell her of my love. My own mother is a Christian who taught us to love our enemies, to reward evil with good. And then he said, after that, I embraced that boy and knew I couldn't torture anyone, any Christians anymore. I was no longer any good as a communist police officer. And that's why they threw me in here with you. Are there any flowers of grace you need to be passing out to the undeserving people in your life? Are there any undeserving Mephibosheths that God has sovereignly placed in your life right now that he wants you to show grace and mercy to? Who knows? Maybe God will use your one act of kindness and grace to melt their stony heart. You know, it's been said that your attitude toward God will be revealed in your worst human relationship. Let me say that again. It has been said that your attitude towards God will be revealed in your worst human relationship. You just think about your worst human relationship right now. And you want to know if God's grace is having an impact in your life today? Then just take a look at your worst human relationship and see if you're willing to show God's kindness, God's has said to them. You want to know if God's grace has reached down and touched the deepest part of your hearts? Then just look and see if you're willing to give grace to those who are really hard to love. If you're not sure if God's grace is having any impact on your life, then there's a couple questions that we can ask ourselves that will help us. First one is this. Am I willing to be God's chosen instrument to show his kindness to the difficult people in my life? Number two, am I willing to do good to the people who I think are completely and absolutely undeserving? May I suggest the way that we answer those questions is pretty good evidence of what kind of grace kind of affect God's grace has had in our lives. Third and final point, if you wanna know if God's grace is having an impact on your life, you can tell his grace is impacting your life today if you express God's kindness in extravagant ways. A little boy was once asked to give the definition of loving kindness, and he said, well, if I was hungry and someone gave me a piece of bread, that would be kindness. But if they threw a little bit of jam on that, that would be loving kindness. Well, David is about ready to pour in a whole lot of jam on Mephibosheth's bread. Let's take a brief look at all this jam here in verses 7, um, 9, 10, 11, and 13. He says, don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land 
that belong to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Verse 10, you and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands the servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Verse 13, and Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table and he was crippled in both feet. So in verse seven, we see that he now has land and a home. He's basically a millionaire overnight. He won the lottery. He's no longer homeless. Verse nine says, yeah, servants, 36 servants to be exact, exact, to help him oversee his brand new estate. And then in verses seven, 10, and 13, we see a beautiful thing. The outcast gets to eat at the king's table. And this is mentioned three times. Now, whenever something's mentioned in the Bible two times, God's like trying to get your undivided attention. It is a very rare thing that you will see something in the Old Testament or New Testament that is mentioned three times in one account. But here we see it, and God's trying to get our attention and point out something very significant. To be invited to the king's table was a mark of honor. If you got invited to the king's table, it would signify that he's including you in the inner circle. And here's the thing. The Bible says he didn't just eat there once. He ate there for every meal. Every meal for the rest of his life, Mephibosheth was eating with the who's who's of the most powerful people on the planet. Now, I can just picture Mephibosheth's first time ever at the banqueting table. He comes in and he's limping and his feet's dragging behind and everybody else is already seated, but he comes in late and it's kind of awkward for him and everybody's like, who's the new guy? And Mephibosheth sits down and as he does sit down, his elbow knocks his cup of milk and he spills it all over King Solomon's lap. And so he takes out a tissue and he's trying to do clean him up a little bit. And, and then they say grace and they start to dig in. And Mephibosheth's eating and he's eating his barbecue wings and his chicken. And he's got barbecue sauce all over his mouth. And he's like, I got to use the restroom. So he gets up to go use the restroom. And as he does, he takes his, his uh, crutch and he knocks the turkey onto the floor. Then there's complete silence. And King David's like, it's okay, Mephibosheth. And then King David reaches into his pocket and pulls out a moist towelette and wipes off the, the barbecue sauce from, from Mephibosheth's face and he says, don't you worry about it. Then he clicks his fingers three times and the butler comes and the butler's standing right in front of Mephibosheth and he says, butler, I want another turkey. This time I want it bigger and I want you to place it right in front of Mephibosheth. Can you imagine what was going through his mind? My guess is Mephibosheth was thinking, I do not belong here. I have no right whatsoever to be sitting at this table, none. For those of you that are Christians, do you know that, that one day you're gonna be sitting at a banqueting table 
seated at the table with the king of glory. You're gonna be seated by your savior who's got uh, holes in his palms of his hands and in his feet, and he's gonna be right there, and you're gonna be right there with him. And here's gonna be an amazing thing. You and I have zero right to be sitting next to him as a co-heir with Jesus Christ, zero. There won't be a single Christian in all of eternity think, I worked my way and I deserve this. There won't be a single one. Every single one will get there the same way as a spiritual beggar as a Mephibosheth, broken, outcast, nothing to offer but our sin. And here's the amazing thing. If you're not on the invitation list yet, you can be. Your name can be on the list today. And the beautiful thing is you can get there the same way that Mephibosheth did. You don't have to earn it. If you think, you know, I'm a good person, I just gotta do enough good, good works. Well, let me tell you, God will pass you over. There is not one good person in heaven. Heaven is full of forgiven people, not good people. And so if you're here, you're saying, that, that's me. Spiritually, I'm a Fibosheth. I'm an outcast. I am spiritually broken. I have nothing to offer to the king. Good news, your name can be on the invitation list right now. I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads. Close your eyes, if you will. If you're in here this morning and you're like, I, I, I want to be seated at that banqueting table and I know I don't belong, you just need to tell God what he already knows. You need to confess your sins. Tell him that you're a sinner and you want forgiveness of sins. If you're watching online with us, I encourage you, uh, we have a host connection card. You can click on that saying, I want to put my faith in Jesus Christ right here, right now. We had someone last service that did that. If you're here right now and you're like, I, I need this Jesus, I'm just gonna ask you to go ahead and raise your hand right now. If there's anyone in here saying, I see one hand right now. If there's anyone in here, I see another hand right now. I see another hand, I see you. If there's anyone in here that wants to place their faith in Jesus Christ, just call out to the king of the universe, ask for forgiveness of sins, and he will grant that to you. Lord, I thank you for this beautiful, beautiful, real-life historical account that gives us a glimpse into your heart of what grace and mercy looks like. And just as Mephibosheth didn't deserve anything good from the king, we don't deserve anything from you that's good, but you sent your son, Jesus Christ, who purchased our forgiveness of sins on the cross. He was crucified, he was buried, and he rose again. And all we need to do is put our trust in him and you will forgive us and we can have a relationship with you for all eternity. Lord, for those that, that raise their hands today, you know their hearts. Um, Lord, help them to grow now. Help, help them to want to get baptized and become more like your son, Jesus Christ. And for those that are already Christians, Lord, help, help all of us to keep our word and help us to show kindness even to the people that we are, think that are undeserving because you love us and we love you. And in your name we pray, amen.